So do you think you're a good person? You know, that's a proven and helpful question uh, for initiating gospel conversations. Do you think you're a good person? Or I've seen uh, brothers set up signs that'll say that uh, out in a plaza or at a university campus. Think you're a good person. Come convince me. Uh, and so if I, as I've asked the question in initiating gospel conversations, I've heard people say, yeah, I suppose so. Uh, something along the lines, uh, you know, I'm certainly not so bad, so bad that God would try and send me to hell or anything like that. Sure, sure, but make your case, really. Do you think you're a good person if you say so? And as I press them a bit, I've heard things like, well, and I hear this repeatedly, almost every time, when they're going to justify themselves as a good person. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. And if they did, I didn't want them to tell me. <laughs> well, I haven't murdered anyone. And so, as if this will prove the great standard of what makes a good person, that you made it through life with enough self-restraint to refrain from murdering someone in cold blood. Good for you. From there, though, as they give that kind of response, I think you have two options. You can just move on. Sometimes that's helpful. Just go to some of the other Ten Commandments and see if they fess up to their brokenness. Have you ever stolen anything, lied just even one time? Or you can do what Jesus does, and he presses in deeper. As we heard from the Sermon on the Mount, my brother James read, he literally, Jesus does, gets to the heart of the matter, the heart of the command. And for you see, it is our very hearts that whatever the command that's coming to us, it's our hearts that ultimately expose us who we are, that we are sinners, rebels against God's ways, His plans, His laws. And I dare say it's even that we have murderous hearts. It exposes who we really are. We are sinners in need of a Savior. So yeah, we're going to study this sixth command, thou shalt not murder. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's just two words, lodoratzak or tirzak. So how are we going to look at two words for 45 plus minutes? Buckle up. Because there's so much here, actually, as we explore a murderer's makeup. What makes up a murderer? What makes up the murderous intention of our heart? And as we do that, not merely looking, have I refrained from killing somebody, but when we look at the desires that motivate a murderer, we start to see ourselves in the mirror. And that's where we see we need to repent. We see that we are in great need of mercy. We see that we're in great need of Jesus, maybe more than we knew. So in summary, if you're going to take this command, I'm going to twist it a little bit and say, what's the implication of the sixth command? You need to kill, yes, but you need to kill any desire of your heart to murder a human life. You need to go right to the heart of things. You need to transform your desires. You need to beg Jesus to do a work in your heart. So kill the sin in your heart. Kill the desire such that you would ever have a thought of degrading, murdering a human life. And we're going to see that unpack in three facets as we consider the murder's makeup. How do we understand murder? And the first question we need to answer is this, 
what makes a murder a murder? Or I wanted to phrase it, what makes a killing a murder? What, what makes murder distinct, or what makes a murder so distinctly murderous, and so then forbidden by this command? To understand what's talked about here, we really understand need to come to grips with what makes a murder a murder. Now, right away, I think this is a simple question to answer. Uh, I think many of us understand what murder is. Uh, the ready answer is it's the unlawful killing of another human being. That's the general definition. An unlawful killing of another human being. That's murder. And we often think of murder, too, as something that's premeditated. You think about it ahead of time. You plot it out. You know, it's the murder mystery type of stuff. You make some kind of plot. You figure out how you're going to get away with it. You lie in wait. You're in hiding. You kill the guy. And then you have a getaway plan. Whatever that is, we know to call it murder. And it is. And the command is here, simply, don't do that, right? Verse 13, then, to set it before us, you shall not murder. That seems easy enough. Murder takes some intention, doesn't it? It takes some active planning and forethought, let alone an evil desire. So don't do that. Don't kill anybody. And if you ever have plans to kill somebody, don't follow through. Whew, okay, I got it. But as we've already alluded to, this prohibition is not that simple. And part of that has to do with not so much really trying to understand murder in our Western context, what it means under our laws or the Virginia law code, but part of this is complicated by this, trying to just frankly understand what did God mean when he told the people of Israel, thou shalt not murder. Because this is shown if maybe you grew up or you're familiar with the King James Bible, right? And it reads a bit differently, though it's very similar. But when it comes to this command, it's thou shalt not kill. And the American Standard Version, which is from the early 1900s, does the same thing. Thou shalt not kill. And so this is puts to us, what's the difference between murdering and killing? What's the command? Is it to not murder or to not kill? Because they're not quite synonyms, are they? Kill is just very generic. It's it's about as generic as possible. And so some have understood this command, thou shalt not kill, this way. And so all forms of killing are then outlawed. Even things like capital punishment or self-defense, let alone what we think of premeditated murder. This is why you have, or some reason why you have, pacifists. Those among Christians who say there's no cause, just cause, to go to war. While you understand killing is very broad, murder has to do with an unlawful killing, which has predetermination. It's premeditated. And that's what's forbidden. Well, those are two kind of positions, but what's meant here? That's what we need to know. Uh, We need to know what did God mean? What has God meant in his law? What was he prohibiting? Was it merely murder or was it all forms of killing? And so we're actually going to have to look into the Hebrew a bit more carefully. I know it's just two words, but you're going to learn some Hebrew today. Isn't that fun? Actually, the Hebrew language, maybe not surprising, but it has a number of words for killing. Uh, I think eight 
different synonyms in some way or another about how you kill. Three or four are actually the main ones that appear in the Bible a whole lot. And one of those words is the one translated murder here in Exodus 20.13. In the Hebrew, the word, the root word is ratzak. So this is your Hebrew lesson. Ratzak is what's forbidden here. Lo tiratzak, but ratzak. Don't murder. And we find this word ratzak, it appears pretty frequently, 49 times in the Hebrew Bible. But interestingly, and this was new in my study this week, 20 of those times, so it occurs 49 times through the whole Hebrew Bible, your whole Old Testament, 49 times, but 20 of those times occur in a single chapter. So if you want to know what ratzak is and what's forbidden here, I think you do well to go to the chapter where it occurs almost half the time to try and understand what it means. And so that's what we're going to do. So I want you to venture with me to another part of God's law. Let's turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 35. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Again, this word ratzak, translated murder in Exodus 20, occurs 20 times in this chapter in Leviticus 35. Now, to set the context for you, what we're dealing with here is here we find laws about what are called Israel's cities of refuge. Remember, God was giving Israel a place in the promised land, the strip of land in the Mediterranean, basically where modern-day Israel is now. God had promised that to the ancient people of Israel. And as they would go into that place and eventually take possession of the promised land, they were to be assigned six, initially, cities that were called cities of refuge. And the idea of the city was refuge was, if there was a killing, if you killed somebody you could run to this city of refuge for refuge, for safety. You could escape. What it's talking about here, if you killed somebody, you could run to a city of refuge to escape the immediate retribution of a revenge killing, somebody out to get you. So that is, once you killed somebody, whether it was intentionally or not, you were, in the biblical understanding, you're guilty of their blood such that a victim's family member had the right, even the responsibility, to come hunt you down and end your life. Unless you outran the avenger and escaped to a city of refuge. In that way, understand that a city of refuge is like home plate, right? Once you slide in, you're safe, as long as you beat the tag. Well, at least initially, these cities, they also, they weren't just sanctuaries. They weren't just sanctuary cities. They really were like court districts. So the thing is, once you show up at the city, you might be then incarcerated, and then you're going to go to trial. And at the trial, they're going to, this city's elders are going to determine whether or not you intended to kill the guy. Either way, there's a punishment coming for you. Either way, you're guilty, whether you meant to do it or not, but your punishment's going to vary based on your intent. And this is part of the debate, isn't it, between understanding killing versus murder. What is your intent? Well, so that's kind of the context for you. But let's pick it up in verse 9 of Numbers 35, because it's going to set the stage for us in defining our word, the word in question, ratzak. Numbers 35, verses 9 through 11. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan, so that means you're entering into the promised land of Canaan to take possession of it. Verse 11, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you that the, and here's our word, manslayer. This is the word ratzak in the Hebrew, the same one from Exodus 20.13, the word manslayer there in your ESV Bible. That the manslayer who kills any person, note the key word, without intent may flee there. And so for ratzak, the word manslayer is a great translation here in this verse. That's a better translation than murderer. Again, murder in our understanding has to do with intent. It says clearly here, the person did not kill them with intent. It was an accident. It was done unintentionally. And so we're already starting to see that the, what's forbidden in Exodus 20 is not merely intentional killings, but accidental ones too. For example, in verse 23 of Numbers 35, you can see this. It paints a scenario of, let's say you have a big boulder and your house is up on a hill and you just, you didn't want the big boulder in your yard and you and a couple of guys just throw the boulder right off the cliff. But it's, it's a huge boulder, it's big enough to crush somebody and sure enough, you didn't look before you dropped it and you dropped it right on somebody, you killed them. Well, you've committed ratzak, you're a manslayer. Because why? You, you should know better. You should have looked. You were doing something dangerous. So again, Ratzak, what's forbidden in Exodus 20, is not merely, as we understand it, strictly murder. That is with malice. It means something broader than that. And yet, so here we're looking now at the, what's really the next paragraph from where we started. Here we are, if you look up to verse 20, of Numbers 35, we actually find that Ratzak can mean, in our understanding, what we commonly think of as murderer. So look at Numbers 35, verse 20. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait, so that he died, and in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. And so what's the point in all of that? What's it saying? Well, when it's talking about you have a stone tool in your hand or you're doing something in enmity, that is, you're fighting and quarreling with somebody, you know, you're, you're in hatred, you're wanting to end this person's life and you were successful, you did it on purpose. You had an intent to kill. You were fighting with him. You hated, with, you hated him. And so you killed him. And so that means, now to pick it up again, still in verse 21, he says, he is a murderer, but the Hebrew word is, can you guess, ratzak, our word from Exodus 20. He is a murderer, one that has done ratzak, and so the avenger of blood, that family member who's going to come and put you to death, he shall put the murderer, the ratzak, the one who's committed ratzak, to death when he meets him. So the picture is here. You went to trial, the city said, no, you meant to do that, and so they give you back over to the avenger who gets to end your life. But what does this mean, pulling out, trying to define what makes a murder a murder? We see that our word ratzak can describe a killer or killings that happened accidentally, can also describe 
killings that are happening by negligence, again, where you should have known better, or it can refer to what we understand as a true murder, killing done with hatred, premeditation, anger, malice. But this means, whether intentionally or no, you can commit ratzak. If it was an accident, though, your penalty was you were to live out your days in the sanctuary city, the city of refuge. If you killed the guy by accident, and that's what the court decided, you couldn't leave the city, at least until the high priest died, and there's more rules about that. But you had to live in that city. If you walked out, you were at the mercy of the avenger. But if you were a murderer, then the city or the, and or the avenger would put you to death. You had to kill the killer. And so we understand both types of killings are forbidden here, intentional and accidental ones. Now that comes to the question, though, how can you forbid accidental killings? Like, think about that a second. It was an accident. If it's true accident, you didn't do it on purpose. So how can you be commanded or exhorted not to do something about that? Well, it becomes clear. You're talking about murders or killings that happen because of negligence or recklessness or thoughtlessness even. And you're not immune when that's the case. Such that, again, like dropping this great stone on someone without looking first, you should have known better. You should have just realized, of course, that would be very dangerous. You weren't thinking. You weren't using appropriate precautions. You killed and then broke God's law, and so consequently you killed somebody. So in that way, this command, you see, it's a positive directive, prohibition, but it also is a positive directive to take proper precautions. You're responsible when doing something dangerous. And so, back to really the question, how to understand this text. Our English word, murder, does not capture all that's entailed with ratzak. Ratzak is broader than that. And so, would killing then be the better translation, thou shalt not kill? No, probably not either. It's like you have killing and you have murder in the English language, and Ratzak is perhaps somewhere in the middle. And why do I say this? Because there's a lot of different killings in the Hebrew Bible, and many of them are not described as Ratzak. There's something else. See, only Ratzak killings are forbidden. But there's many other killings that are actually commissioned by God to happen, and so then evidently are not against his law. There are authorized or excused killings that are permitted. We saw it already with capital punishment for the murderer. But none of those are described by the word ratzak that we saw in Exodus 20, verse 13. And so I want to just give you four categories as well to kind of fill in your thinking on killing in the Old Testament. Four other categories that are not outlawed, and the word ratzak is not used, murder is not used to refer to them. So let me run through these four categories. So first of all, understand that killing animals does not violate the sixth commandment. So if you want to do the whole vegan thing, that's fine. That's your choice. But don't keep away from that delicious meat because you think that animals shouldn't be killed, that it would be disobeying the sixth command. It has nothing to do with that, okay? God even told Noah, as he got off the boat, this is Genesis 9-3, every moving thing that lives shall be for food. So killing animals to eat them, to be clear, is not murder, despite whatever PETA or PETA or whatever it is tells you. 
Now, does this permit us to abuse animals because of this command? No, of course not. Proverbs goes on to say, Proverbs 10, or excuse me, 12, verse 10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. And yet, God prescribes for animals at times to be killed, slaughtered, sacrificed, and eaten. And all fans of barbecue said, Amen. And in no way does that violate the sixth command. So this is not, thou shalt not kill any kind of life out there. Secondly, we noted this already, executing a death penalty on someone, capital punishment, nor is that murder. That does not break Ratzak or this sixth commandment. We already saw it from Numbers 35. The murderer was supposed to be put to death. But that's not murder. That's execution. That's justice. That's life for life, you see. And we saw that already in the Ten Commandments with a number of those commands. Capital punishment is an authorized killing, authorized by God, and it's not murder either. And nor is it murder to kill someone in the process of self-defense. That's not Ratzak. That's not murder. For example, we'll come to this, you know, in months from now when we get to Exodus 22. But here's a law from Exodus 22, verse 2. It says, if a thief is found breaking in, the idea is to your house or wherever you are, and is struck, so that the thief is struck, so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him, the one who struck him. So you're not guilty of murder for killing a burglar in your home. Now, there's a little more nuance there. We'll go explain that in some detail, Lord willing, like I said, later. But if someone breaks in trying to take your stuff or trying to hurt you or someone in your house, and in the process, the violator gets killed, you are not culpable by God's law. Okay, I'll let the officers and lawyers answer about the Virginia law code. But that's not Ratzak. It's not a guilty killing. And finally, neither is there kind of killing found among combatants in war. That is not murder either. Ratzak is never used to describe the kind of killing that takes place in war. And of course, you know, God demands at times Israel to go to war, to eradicate uh, the nations out of the promised land. Now, that does create uh, other kinds of challenging moral questions, but at least understand that's not murder and it's not forbidden by the sixth commandment. So to sum up, various Hebrew words are used to describe slaughtering animals, executing criminals, engagements of war, but they never use the word ratzak, murder, that we find from Exodus 20. They may be killings, yes, but they are not murder. They're not guilty killings. They're not ratzak. So I think to consolidate it a little more clearly, the sixth commandment forbids any unlawful or unauthorized killing. That's what it means which would include both murders stemming from hatred, as we commonly think of it, but that would also mean killing stemming from selfish, thoughtless negligence or recklessness. That is also evil and breaks the command. Okay, so we had to get technical. You had your Hebrew lesson. Now we have to ask another question. What makes then murder so evil? And turn with me. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 9. So we're going to go to the first book of the Bible to answer this question. Why is murder so bad? Why is murder so evil? Now, again, on its face, this seems like a really easy question. Why is murder so bad? Well, if we murdered each other, society just ends, doesn't it? I mean, ask anyone, whatever their worldview is, Muslim, Buddhist, evolutionist, atheist, agnostic, 
or even the most committed government socialists and communists, whatever worldview you're coming from, the unjust killing of innocents is a bad thing. So murder should be forbidden. Again, why? Well, if we let people get away with murder, we fall into lawless chaos. Not to mention, just more personally, why do we want to say murder's bad? I don't want to get murdered. How about that? So let's agree not to murder anybody. You don't murder me. I don't murder you. We coexist and get bumper stickers. <laughs> but God's prohibition against murder, actually, why it's so evil, it's much more profound than mere coexistence. And the key thing to recognize is this. Men and women are made in the image of God. That is why unwarranted killing and destroying of the image of God is such a moral atrocity. Not because you merely want to survive. It's the bedrock truth that makes the taking of a human life such a moral atrocity, a tragedy. And so here we are, we're in Genesis chapter 9, and there's so much here. But what's going on is that Noah, of course, just came off the ark after God judged the whole world, killed the whole world, really. And he's starting over with this one man and his family, and he commissions Noah in the very same way that Adam and Eve were commissioned, telling them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the creation mission 2.0, right? He's starting over with humanity. But as he starts over this time, God sets a new ground rule. The sanctity of human life, of your lifeblood. So here we are. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. It reads, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Quote, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So this is the authorization, to understand, of capital punishment for a murderer. You shed man's blood so he dies, you deserve to die. You deserve to be judged. Now the reason, though, and this is what's so key. The end of verse 6, for God made man in his own image. God sees it. Your murder was not an attack merely on a person. You were attacking God. To kill a man is to destroy a representative of God on earth. And such a disrespect, such a disregard of man's special dignity in the creation, which is really because of God's great holy dignity, that is the ultimate affront that must pay the ultimate price. This must prove the foundational reason about why Ratzak or murder is so horrible. Each person who is murdered bears the very image of God. And so, more than that, you might then say, every image bearer, their lives must be protected and valued and prized. And so, with this as the foundation, so it's not about self-interest. That's not what this command is about. That's why we shouldn't murder. It's about the very dignity of God's representation and creation, the image of God in man. And that has impact in at least three key ways as our culture debates this whole life and death situation. 
And so I want to address three of these again briefly. First, you understand then suicide? Suicide is the intentional killing of one's own life. Christians have often talked about it, and rightly so, that it's self-murder. It's the self-destruction of God's image in you. Self-murder is sin. It breaks the, the sixth commandment. Now, it's not an unforgivable sin, so to speak, as some have taught. But it's sin nonetheless. But this is not the way suicide is talked about in our culture these days, is it? It's no longer really, he committed suicide. It's, he died by suicide. Or, they lost their life to suicide. As if suicide is this cancer, some condition that can't be helped. And I think I get in part, and even empathize in part, why we want to talk about suicide like this. Because it, it seems compassionate. I mean... Haven't they and their family suffered enough already? Why bother bringing this up? You know. But I just found this pastor's counsel so appropriate. He said this. Suicide, it might feel like the only way out, but Scripture tells us that God will never lead us into a situation where violating His commandments is the only option. And so here's why it's worth bringing up. We do not help struggling saints by refusing to tell them that suicide is displeasing to God. That doesn't help anybody. Actually, he goes on, lovingly spoken in the right time, that may be the one of the ways in which God jolts the suicidal soul back to saner and more righteous thinking. Why? Because understand, however depressed and pointless you think your life is, your life is precious to God. He prizes you because you bear his image. You may think your life's pointless, but the God who made you doesn't. And nor do we as his church, let me say. Now that's related to another cultural issue. And that's of euthanasia, or good death is what it means in the Greek. Or the medical jargon for this is physician-assisted suicide. This, too, is murder. It's the unauthorized killing of a human life where both the physician, medical professionals involved, and the patient himself are all culpable. And so you understand with assisted suicide, we are not talking about, and I know this is quite difficult, we're not talking about the suspension of medical treatment. That's not what this is. You know, there's going to come to a point where Machines might be able to keep your heart pumping and your lungs moving, really indefinitely, it seems like. But there comes to a point where you or your loved one, they just won't ever recover. If you take those machines away, there's no way their body's going to survive. And so, sure, I mean, it sets up very difficult decisions, medical directives, and all of those things. But at some point, you're asking, when do we suspend the heroic measures that are called and let just life or death take its course. That's not suicide. But it is quite a different thing if the doctor says, well, you have six months to live with this cancer, and then you just want to clock out early and end things early. What's God saying? I gave you that life. It has my stamp. You don't have the right to take it. God does. 
and nor does any government or health federal panel get to determine whether you should live or not that way. That's God's right. And so we must seek to preserve every human life from womb to the tomb. But consider this, Christian. It might actually be precisely how you face death that will be the greatest testimony to a Redeemer who can deliver from it. Speaking of the womb, of course, we must understand that this command to not murder also forbids the termination of life in the womb itself. Abortion is murder. See, life begins at conception. And again, actually, everybody agrees with that. The disagreement is whether that life, what kind of life is it? You know, they want to call it a fetus. Is it a fetus or a human baby? As if this fetus grows and suddenly crosses into the threshold of humanity. It went from a other kind of life and then becomes a human life. But that's not how this works. It's a human life from conception. The whole time, that baby growing in the tummy bears the very image of God. Again, what does this mean? That microscopic baby is fully human and should be protected and must never be aborted. Why? Because they bear the image of God. This means abortion is murder. And that's why, again, maybe in a few weeks we'll get there. In Exodus 21, we find this situation where these couple guys are tussling in a fight and the situation is a, a pregnant woman goes to try and intervene and she gets hurt in the process and she delivers her baby prematurely such that the baby dies. Well, here's what the law says. Exodus 21, verse 23. But if there is harm to the baby, that is, then you shall pay life for life. Why? Because you cause the death of an image bearer just like yours. One theologian as well said, kind of summing this up, the human person created in the image of God, no matter their quality of life, their diagnosis, their age, their position in or out of the womb, the number of chromosomes they have, or their unique challenges or special needs, they are deserving of life that we should protect. And we must say as his people, amen. That's what this command's about protecting the image of God all over the place in every human at whatever their development, whatever their deficiencies, whatever their decrepitude, they still, still fully represent God as an image bearer. Protect, preserve life, don't kill it. Honor the Creator and trust Him with it. All right. Now let's turn briefly here to Matthew chapter 5 where we started our service in the Scripture reading. And we're going to deal with the question, what makes a murderer murder? What's the motive? What explains the murderer? Because thus far you might be thinking, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I think I'm pretty good. And I already disagreed with abortion and euthanasia. I got this one. Well, we're going to dig a little deeper and we're going to find murder's source and so we return to Matthew chapter 5, and this is the longest extended teaching of Jesus that's recorded in Scripture. And when he shows us, we have to look at this command, and we have to look at it a little bit deeper because he's saying you need to cut out not just refraining from killing, but that murderous impulse. 
So Jesus lays out the sixth commandment to begin with, verse 21. He says, Matthew 5, 21, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Quoting our command. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You're guilty. You're supposed to be put to death. So first, he affirms the prohibition. But of course, he doesn't stop there. Our Lord probes deeper. Verse 22, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the same punishment that the murderer is. Do you see that there? It's the very same. Liable to judgment, liable to judgment. You murder, you're liable to judgment. You hate your brother, you're liable to judgment. Same language, same penalty. Now why? Precisely because it isn't the same crime. Well, no, not exactly. That's not quite his point. But in pointing to anger, to hatred, Jesus exposes what makes a murderer murder. It's that heart of anger, that hatred towards your brother. So again, while we might wish to excuse ourselves from disobeying this command, I've never murdered anybody. Good for you, but note this. The heart of a murderer and your heart of hatred, Jesus' point, they're no different. They are the very same. They're both sinful. They both break the heart of this command. One of you just took the chance to follow through. Well, but I've never hated anybody like that, like that bad. I don't have a murderous heart. And Jesus to that says, oh, really? For he continues on in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever just says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. Hellfire? Because I called somebody a fool? Yeah, because it's the same wicked, rebellious heart that God's looking at. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody. But have you ever just blurted out, that guy's an idiot. If you ever said fool, or literally in the Greek here, empty-headed, you've probably never quite said that. But something like it, I bet. And even if it didn't come out of your mouth, did you ever think it? It's the same heart. That's the heart of a murderer. Taking a life stamped with the image and glory of God and degrading it with your words, if not just your thoughts, that's the same whole... Hateful impulse that can murder too. Now, if you're not convicted yet, Jesus is going to turn it up one more notch. Because after uncovering the heart, Jesus draws out another implication of this command as he goes on. Look at verse 23. So then, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Think of the context. What have we been talking about? What's Jesus getting at if your brother has something against you? If you have given your brother a legitimate reason to be angry with you. If you've given your brother a reason to be angry with you, you're also breaking the sixth command. Why? Because you're tempting his heart to want to murder you. 
If you've wronged your brother in some way and have not sought to make it right, are you not tempting him to murderous anger? You are. And that breaks this command too. So that to don't be aloof, content to say, well, it's no big deal. That, that, that's his problem. No, Jesus says, it is yours with me. That's whose problem this is. Such that he says, leave all your worship, leave all your praises to me, leave all your sacrifices, leave your offering check in your pocket, and go be reconciled to your brother. Make it right. Verse 24. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God doesn't even want your worship if you're not willing to own your wrongs and try and make it right with your brother. To stop tempting him to be angry with you. Now, you can't be at peace with everybody. Jesus certainly wasn't. He had a whole lot of enemies. Paul even tells the church in Romans, this is Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. But this is the question, have you done your part to make peace? Have you owned your wrongs, your legitimate wrongs you've done to your brother? Even when, get this, this is like 101 premarital counseling here. Even when the wrongs you have done seem like minor infractions compared to what they did to you, you can't control how they're going to respond. But will you confess your wrongs and your sins to Christ? And even to your brother whom you have wronged and tempted to anger and to disobedience to this command. And so considering all these angles then, you shall not murder what can we but conclude that we are and have murderous, selfish hearts? So quick to neglect the lives, the concerns, the cares of others, like those lives made in God's image, but they don't matter much, at least to us, when God tells us with his command, no, every life matters, your life matters, from womb to tomb, every life is stamped with the image of the holy, almighty, awesome God. And in any way, you diminish that image in others through action or inaction, or word or thought even, you've diminished the image of God in the world, and so have broken this sixth command. Now, where is their hope here? I look at this and I'm like, well, what's a guilty murderer supposed to do? Let me remind you of the power of Christ's gospel. There was this guy named Saul. You might know him as Paul. And in the book of Acts, he literally watched over the murder, wrongful execution of Stephen. And then we read this in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to, be the, went to the high priest you know, to get letters so he can persecute. What's the point about Saul? He was a murderer. But do you know what happened as he went on his way to go find more Christians to throw in jail, if not murder? Jesus met him along the way. And you know what Jesus did with him along the way? He commissioned him, he called him, converted him, and commissioned Paul to go out with the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you look at that and like, you picked a murderer? You picked a murderer to represent you? To write like half the Bible, New Testament anyway? 
God, what were you thinking? Paul knew what God was thinking. He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is 1 Timothy 1.16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, and you might add murderer, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if Christ can forgive me, the worst sinner, a blasphemer, persecutor, cruel and violent, hateful man, a murderer, if he can forgive me, then who can Christ not forgive? What sin could Jesus' death not pay the full sin debt for? There is none. Christ came to this world to save sinners, the worst of sinners, and only sinners, but sinners that see their sin, they see their heart, they confess it is wrong, and they trust in Christ for mercy. And so where does that leave murderous hearts? The ones that look to Jesus, it leaves us with hope. Hope in Christ and the power of the cross. Hope in the forgiveness that happens for lawbreakers like us. That makes a way that we can put down our hate, we can put down our bitterness, we can put down our pride to say, if Christ can forgive me, murderer though I am, who've wronged his image and of name, how can I not forgive those who have wronged me? And dare I say, that's the only mindset, the only heart attitude that will be able to put a murderous heart to death. It's a heart that remembers the grace that we as sinners received in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and thank him for this. Lord Jesus, what a mercy it is that even in the example of Paul, lawbreaker and sinner though he was, he was shown mercy and then entrusted with such a ministry. Why? Because you're a gracious God who saves sinners and you've transformed them. And may we as your people who have been shown mercy and reminded of it, even as we've been reminded too of our sin, may we be so overcome by grace, so overcome by the mercy you've shown us that we are just so quick to forgive. We're quick to cover over grudges. We're quick to reconcile, to own our sin. We're quick to point to a greater Savior. And it's in his name alone we pray. Amen.